Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Schechtman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello, everyone. Today we are talking to James Bickle. James is a Moore Inventor Fellow, Assistant Professor in Mechanical Engineering. He is the lead of the Pickle Research Group and seeks to make transformative advances in energy storage, energy conversion, multifunctional materials and robotics by understanding and exploiting nanoscale to macroscopic characteristics of electrochemistry and soft matter. He graduated at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he worked on fabricating high-power microbatteries and high-strength cellular metals. He received a 2020 Moore Inventor Fellowship as well as a 2020 Toyota Programmable System Innovation Fellowship and several awards for his research. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to send any comments or suggestions to polymerSciencePodcast at gmail.com. Also remember to subscribe and share this podcast if you enjoyed it and you are welcome to leave a review. Thank you so much for listening and all your support. We really appreciate it. First of all, welcome, Prof. James. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much for granting me your time and your busy schedule. It's really appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Could you please just give us a brief introduction of who you are and what you're currently busy with? Yeah, so um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And mechanical engineering is like a it's become an extremely broad category because it turns out mechanics uh, is important and, and the things we study is important in, in most things from healthcare to energy to even more traditional mechanics, which is like more automotive and, and moving parts, um, which has become more like robotics these days. So you see mechanical engineers everywhere. They are building things in, in uh, basically any uh, physical uh, uh, hardware um, system. Me specifically, my background is in transport, so thinking about how things move, uh, specifically at the nanoscale, and that led me to my research on on batteries. So that my po- my PhD was on batteries, and then later, and the way we uh, made these batteries is we used nanoscale self assembly and some other kind of advanced kind of nanoscale fabrication techniques to make these architectures and make really high batteries. Now my lab has diversified. I did a postdoc at Cornell in soft robotics. So I have a, a battery section, I have a soft robotics section, which is looking at how do you make robots and control robots that are soft. So they're, they're made out of materials that are you know the same stiffness as our skin so they can interact with humans safely and other things. And then I have a hybrid section which combines basically the, the two fundamental things in my lab, I guess, are electrochemistry and soft matter. Um, and soft matter at different scales, and we combine those together in the middle with multifunctional materials. So that's kind of like the overview of my lab, which is n- not super focused, but but uh, the the that's we awesome. we like to play with things that we like, I guess. With things that <laughs> that are sounds fun. really cool. <laughs> what made you decide to go into mechanical engineering in the first place? It was like when you were undergrad, what drew you to this field? So it's not like a very um, amazing story because. I basically was applying to college and I didn't know what to do and I just thought I think I I just like I I think I internally thought about it for a minute and I was like I think I should do mechanical engineering and so I just checked that box (laughs) 
and that just kind of pushed me forward. Um, and it turns out that I got lucky that mechanical engineering is, is so broad that as I found my passion, I was still able to fit it within this broader construct of, of mechanical engineering. So that worked out really well for me. But there wasn't like any specific things. I, like, I wasn't a kid. I liked, you know, doing what other scientists and engineers like to do. And I was good at yeah. math and science. But there wasn't something specific about mechanical engineering. I didn't even know what it was, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> it just sounds cool. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, in your research, you work with polystyrene and polyimide, but uh, there's a lot of polymers that you're used to working with in mechanical engineering. Um, are polymers just naturally part of mechanical engineering, or do mm. you specifically choose projects that incorporates that into the study? Yeah, so they are part of all sorts of areas in mechanical engineering. Um, so there's a huge uh, growth in mechanical engineering that's studying the mechanics of soft materials. And this is uh, related to my work through soft robotics. So that's understanding things like elastomers and how do you use and make elastomers uh, so that like silicones or polyurethanes that you can actually get them to, to change their shape and act like robots in controlled manners. But there's also like uh, sections of mechanical engineering where they're studying uh, the mechanics of uh, polymers or polymer-like materials that are representative of what you see in biology. Um, so, so complex material systems where the mechanical response actually changes the behavior of that material. Um, and then even in, in doing studies in, uh, in biological systems like uh, human skin and human tissue. And it turns out mechanics plays an important role in all of these things. It changes the way we grow and, uh, and the way we are shaped as, as living animals. And so polymers are everywhere in mechanical engineering. Um, and that's also the, the polystyrene, for example, we use as also as a tool to manufacture things. And 3D printing has become a big thing nice. uh, in mechanical engineering, right? And and the main tool, people are looking at making metals as well, but the main tool that people have used for 3D printing, which is enabling these dramatic changes in manufacturing, is based on uh, understanding polymers. So, yeah, it's everywhere yeah. in mechanical engineering. Just to veer off the path, just for a second, you mentioned metals. Um, with Tokyo Olympics... Um, currently happening. I've, he I've heard that they've actually made metals that are recycled from um, discarded laptop pieces and devices yeah. like that. How I heard that too. That's so cool. <laughs> it's very I cool, yeah. Realize. And the metals are huge. I don't know if they're solid they're gold or if they're just gold plated, but uh, if they were solid gold, uh, there must be a lot of waste out there. That I imagine they're yeah. just gold plated or something like it that. It must be, but still that's that's brilliant. It's really cool, right? Yeah. So uh, you worked on something that's called metallic wood. Um, yes. It is called that because it has the strength of titanium and the density of water. This is directly quoted from one of your articles. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about this material and how it was deve developed to have these characteristics? Yeah. So um, first, if you look at wood, wood is a pretty amazing material. So we use it for building everything, right? It's, it's, like, uh, it's prevalent in nature. Um, but we use it for building because it's strong and it's lightweight. Um, and the reason why it's strong and it's lightweight is because it's made out of a strong material, but it has these cellular pores. So basically pores that are organized. And those pores are, are there because of the way that it's, it's grown, right, in its, its own self-assembly process. Mm. Um, but it's that combination of having a strong material plus 
plus architected pores that makes it strong and lightweight. That's kind of like the gist of, of wood. Um, there's a lot more complexity in terms of like what polymers are there or, or what materials are there, what cellulose is there. Um, but generally speaking, it's porous. And so when we made this new material called uh, metallic wood, the reason why we called it metallic wood is because it's indicative of wood in the sense that it's it's made of a very strong material, but it, that strong material has pores in it and these regular pores. And if you combine those two things together, you get a material that can be as strong as a metal, um, but is much more dense because it's porous, or much less dense, sorry, because it's porous. Um, and therefore, it's lightweight and strong, just like wood is lightweight and strong. So that's kind of the genesis of the wow. name. That's really yeah. awesome. So you use polystyrene and polyamide uh, for the fabrication of this um, wood, metallic wood, essentially. Can you just maybe explain how these polymers were chosen and, and why? Why they were chosen? Yeah, yeah so the, um, the approach, so th this group of materials are called kind of lattices or cellular solids and they're basically just porous materials that are uh, architected to achieve some sort of combination of strength and, and density right um, and the way that people have been uh, making these materials recently has been with 3d printing um, and it turns out that what they found is that if you make these materials very very small they get very very strong and there's some nanoscale strengthening effects that go into it and so the ideal kind of uh, metallic wood is a material that has struts. So if you think about struts are like the, the ligaments that connect individual mm -hmm. sections, just like struts in a building or in a scaffolding. Yes. Um, you want those to be like tens of nanometers in diameter. Um, and the smaller they are, the stronger they are. And so people started 3D printing this with these very high uh, resolution printing uh, kind of tools. Um, using like two-photon lithography. And they show that this actually works and you can get really strong materials. But they can't make them very big, right? Okay. So, this, you know, they make them and they're like 100 microns by 100 microns. So they've done the science and the science is really cool. Uh, but then, you know, you want to be able to maybe turn this into a device or uh, maybe ultimately something like a bridge, but probably more practically something that like protects your computer or something that's light, strong. Um, but you can't make them right now very large. And so this is where a lot of our work went into, uh, which is like, well, how do you make them big? Well, we took inspiration from biology, which is the other kind of connection with the metallic wood name, is that we were going to grow them from self-assembly. Um, and so what we do is we basically grow a polymer scaffold. Um, that is the inverse of the structure that we finally want, just like you would build a scaffold for the building when you're build, constructing a building. So you build the scaffold that provides a framework for you to then put in the structural members. And so that's what we use the polymers for. And we chose polystyrene because we wanted to use a self-assembly process. And uh, the pores are on the scale of uh, 500 nanometers, so hundreds of nanometers. And so we needed a stable colloidal solution to do that. Uh, and then a, and a solution that also had monodispersed colloids. So basically all of the, the spheres that are floating around in water are uh, about the same diameter. And so uh, that's why we chose polystyrene is because there was a, there was a lot of uh, known techniques to make very small spheres that can uh, be stably suspended in water and you can control very precisely their size. And so when you awesome. then when we self-assemble them and grow them, we get these nice regular packings and we can then deposit metal through the, the voids in the, in the uh, polymer structure and then we etch away the polymer 
and then we get the final structure. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's just like building a building where you might have a wood, or if you go, especially if you go to Asia, right? They have like a bamboo scaffold. Yes. Um, and then they use the bamboo bamboo scaffold to kind of set the structure, and then they put in the steel beams and the other Mm -hmm. or the concrete beams and the structural parts, and then they remove the bamboo scaffold. We're doing the same thing. Here, the polymer or the polystyrene is the bamboo scaffold, and then our our metal structure is like the the metal structure of the frame that you would see in a building. How important is it that there is a lot of? Should there be a lot of pores, or is it? Can there be too much pores? Like, what is the perfect optimal yeah. porosity, and how does that affect the performance? So there there is no perfect optimal porosity, uh, and the porosity or the pore structure even is very important. Um, there's been a lot of good fundamental studies that kind of look at how important not only is the, the relative amount of porosity, which is let's say the percentage of material that isn't there, um, but also the shape of those pores plays a really important role and the number yeah. of struts that connect individual pores. And so it, it turns out it plays a huge importance. So for something that's like 10% uh, dense, so that means it's 90% porous. If you have, in an extreme case, a structure that has, um, let's say, uh, what's called it, like an octet truss type structure, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But it's a structure that when you when you push on it, it actually doesn't uh, deform by bending. It deforms perfectly by, by like a, a compression, right, okay. or tension if you're pulling. Um, and then if you compare that to uh, a, another structure with the same porosity but um, a structure that's more curved that would bend when you push on it, Mm. you can get uh, order of magnitude difference in the resulting material properties, like the strength or the stiffness of that material. And so really, like even if you have the same porosity, but you change the shape of that pores, you can have 10x difference in the uh, resultant material properties of your kind of cellular material. So the pores make a huge difference. Um, and one of the nice things about uh, uh, making these nanoscale polymers is that we can get very nice, precise control over the pore structure, mm-hmm. and therefore we can use that to very precisely t- tune the, the properties that we want. Yeah. yeah, and according to the application that you're going to use it for. Exactly, exactly. So you can make it lighter if you want it to be lighter. You can make it uh, stiffer if you need it to be stiffer mm-hmm. in different parts, and you, just, you can use the, the porosity to kind of tune these properties. You did a bit of tensile testing as well. I see in your article there was a lot of tensile testing that needed to be done. How did the yeah. like did you test the wood metallic wood to actual normal wood, and how did that compare to the um, you know just normal wood that you would usually use? Yeah, so we didn't com- we didn't do the the testing to uh, compare it to natural wood in our paper specifically, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people who have done that, and we have kind of general data points that show where natural wood uh, would fall compared to the the measurements we did. So we did tensile testing. The tensile testing is pretty straightforward. You basically hold on to the sample and you you pull it apart, and then you measure you plot the the force required to pull it a certain distance is all it is. Um, and so the, it's just like a spring, right? The, the harder you, uh, the farther you want to pull it apart, the more force you have to apply. Mm. And then the tensile testing just shows you that. And yeah. what you get out of that are two main things. One is you get a stiffness. So that's the resistance to that deformation, just like a rubber band has stiffness. Uh, and the other one is you get the, the ultimate strength. So like how far can you pull it? How much force can you add before it breaks? Um, and so those are the two things that we're kind of comparing to other materials. 
Um, yeah. And it turns out that there's there's lots of ways to think about how to compare these, even though there's like these simple things like strength and stiffness and, and density, there's these things called Ashby plots. And so you can compare these to all sorts of different materials in all sorts of different ways. Um, but the general gist is that because of the nanoscale size of the, the metal struts, we still, even though we're like 80% porous, we still mm -hmm. can achieve strengths that are comparable to metals that are 100% uh, dense or 0% porosity. Wow. Yeah, and so, <laughs> exactly. So it's really cool. Um, and the reason why that works is because when you have metals, metals are made of, of like crystal structures of atoms, right? Um, and it turns out though, when you make crystal structure of anything, you get defects. Um, and so when you have a, a bulk sample, there's many defects. And so when you pull those metals apart, you never really approach the theoretical strength of the bond between atoms, right? What happens is you get a defect. It could be like the lack of an atom. And then that causes like a stress concentration. And therefore, that defect determines. So it breaks before you ever get to the point of the, the strength of the bonds between atoms. Mm, um, and it turns out, yeah, so it turns out metals are like about 10 times uh, weaker than they theoretically could be because of these defects. And when you make materials smaller and smaller, these defects actually, the, the fraction of the defects goes down. And so their effect goes down. And so if you make these uh, struts really, really small, you can get, a, you can approach their theoretical strength, which can be, like I said, 10 times higher than their practical strength if you have a bulk wow. sample. So that's how you're able to get really strong samples that are still quite porous. Um, and so we do the tensile testing. We compare the strength and modulus of these materials and they have similar strength to other metals, but then they have density that's, you know, about water or a little bit heavier than water. That's so um, incredible. That's really yeah. cool. It's really, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I know that I'm like doing the work, but um, it's really, really cool materials. Um, and uh, it's exciting to work on them. Yeah, and it's really like, it's so fascinating because it can be a very versatile too. Like you've mentioned, it can be used for building bridges or for like protecting your your laptop. Yeah, it's 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 even more versatile actually because like um, people use these types of materials for cooling computer chips. Um, oh, so wow. not even looking at their their structural components, just um, their heat transfer components. Um, people, I've used them in batteries before. We've made at some point they were the world's most powerful batteries. We made them from these structures. So there, there's a lot of things you can do. You can add chemical functionality. This is like a, a background, like a backbone type technology. Yeah. And you can you can turn it into all these other cool technologies, but <laughs> we won't go Ew. down all of those routes. <laughs> no. Um. One of my questions is actually, what is the applications all for that material? So definitely we can go into it. Sure. Before we do, because I know I have a, there's a few students that I know are interested in learning more about tensile testing and the stress uh, strain curve and all that. So if you just have like a moment to just maybe briefly explain um, what the stress uh, strain curve is and like things like the yield strength and moduli uh, for an undergrad student that's maybe interested in you know going into the direction of mechanical engineering for his postgrad and studying more about the physical like uh, aspects of uh, materials and how to test the strength and stuff like that that will be very useful i think yeah sure no problem so uh the stress strain curve is is kind of like what i was explaining before where you have a material and you pull on it when you mm -hmm. pull on it that material basically the the bonds and the atoms are connected with what you can imagine are like little tiny springs 
right? And so the, the harder you pull on it, the more it wants to push back. And you can do this with just a regular spring or a rubber band. I say rubber band because everyone knows what it is. A yes. rubber band is a little bit more complex when you get into the details of it because it has a nonlinear stress-strain relationship. But <laughs> you get the basic idea. Whereas basically, if you, if you pull it farther away from your initial location, so let's say you hold it maybe a foot apart, and if you pull it, as you pull it farther away from each other, it pulls back harder and harder. And so if you plot that, you're going to plot force versus displacement. And you're going to get, and for most materials, they're going to start off being a line. You're going to get a, a linear relationship. And it's the slope of that line is the modulus, which is basically like the spring constant of the okay. material. Um, so if you have a spring that is you know, stiffer or made of more metal, it's going to have a higher spring constant. So polymers will be less stiff. You can pull a, a polymer farther apart with mm -hmm. less force. That's the modulus, right? Yes. Um, then you can a metal. A metal, it takes a lot more force to pull it the same distance. And so that's the stiffness. And then the maximum force that you can actually pull on it before it breaks is, is the yield strength or the ultimate strength. It depends on how you're looking at it. Right. Um, and then the stress versus strain is just taking those things and normalizing them, right? So you have force. If you normalize it by the, the area over which you're applying that force, you get the stress. Mm. Um, and what that allows you to do is it makes it kind of scale invariant. So uh, it turns out that the stress is more important than the force because if you take the force and you normal, normalize it by the area, it becomes more like a material property. Um, and then strain is also very similar. You're just normalizing it by the original displacement. So you're measuring the final displacement and then you're normalizing it by the original displacement and therefore you get strain. So that's what the stress-strain curve is. Awesome. Thank you so much for explaining that. Mm -hmm. The part where you mentioned about the density and, and um, that is the, it has the density of water. Uh, now coming back to the applications that it can be used for, is the density a crucial part of the um, metallic wood or is it just a, a very awesome byproduct? So should, it, hmm. should it be considered as part of the uh, application that it can be used for? Um, is it useful or is it just a cool um, additional characteristic. Yeah, that's a great point. So the density, um, there are many ways to look at the density and how useful it is. Um, so at a, at, a, at a very simple level, the density just tells you how much it's going to weigh for the volume of material mm. you have. And that fundamentally is actually very important when you're thinking about designing things like planes or cars. Because for a plane, for example, you want it to be able to hold a certain strength and you want it to be able to have a certain shape in order to get your aerodynamics. But if you have the same material but a lower density, you can do all of that with less weight mm -hmm. and therefore you can fly farther, right? Yes. Um, so that's the advantage of uh, density or having lower density. Or if you're a car, um, you, if you have lower density mm -hmm. materials, then you're lighter and therefore your engine doesn't have to work as hard and therefore you don't burn as much CO2, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's also environmental importance of density. So that's kind of like Wonderful. the first order importance of density. There's all a lot of like subtle uh, changes in density uh, or importance of density. One of them might be, for example, if you have a system where you have a very restricted amount of uh, volume that you can actually build a device in, maybe this is like in a part of a robotic arm that it maybe it has some complicated device, right? But there, you want it to look relatively human, and so you want mm -hmm. it to maintain a similar form factor. 
um, the density and, and its relationship to the strength actually determines how much total material you need in order to, for example, prevent it from bending or breaking. Um, and so in that case, also the density matters because what it means is that you can have a smaller amount of material to achieve the same results uh, or to resist the same amount of load as opposed to a bigger material. The bigger the material, then the less room you have for electronics or wires or other things like that, if that makes sense. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned the robotic arms, and I, I have to start with, I can't really you know, finish the podcast episode without talking about <laughs> that. Um, you are currently working, did you mention that you are currently working with things like that in your group, in your research group? Yes. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a bit more about that, please? <laughs> that sounds yeah, so absolutely. interesting. And I know that everybody's going to kick me if I don't ask about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we are, uh, we're, we have a project with me and then several other uh, roboticists and a physicist and a polymer chemist uh, trying to make soft robots. Um, in this particular, I guess the biggest project we have is we're trying to make a robot that can, for example, help uh, a nurse move a patient in a hospital bed. Um, and the reason why you might want to do this is because actually that task is very difficult. Uh, so typically there's people who tend to be pretty heavy, especially if they can't move themselves. And uh, nurses, uh, it's like in the United States alone, it costs uh, like $2 billion a year in terms of like uh, payment for injuries of nurses getting injured and moving people around. What? And also oh. a lot of nurses leave the field because they get injured doing this. Um, so it causes like 20% of the nurses that leave, leave because of this problem. So it's a problem um, that, that we have. And also if you think about it, like uh, now with COVID, like there are less exposure from person to person. That's right. And you... Exactly. And so yeah. the, the idea, though, is not to replace a nurse because yeah. you can't really it's really, really hard for robots to do the things that humans do. Right. Yeah, for sure. Humans are, are incredible. And then that's just thinking about the physical things. And if you ever been to the hospital, nurses do a lot more than just uh, the physical aspects. Right. They're very emotionally supportive yes. and stuff like that. But but what we want to do is we want to build uh, kind of uh, almost like a, a robotic bed that can help move and, and position the patient around so that the nurse can kind of do it, but the amount of force that she has to exert is significantly less. And so yeah. she doesn't have to lift the whole weight of the human, the robot kind wow. of helps that. And so the, the way we do that is we kind of think about how we can change the shape of, you can think of them as like polymer sheets. So if you had just like, like a regular blanket or something like that. Um, but if you want it, what we try to do is we try to get that blanket to uh, change its shape uh, by itself, right? Um, okay. And so you might go from like a flat blanket to a blanket that's curved or that has a hill in the middle or something like that. Um, and if you can do that and you can do that with like and also lift uh, an object, you can imagine how a bed might be able to change its shape in order to, to reposition a human. The... Yes, wow. Exactly. That sounds a little bit like a sci-fi movie idea. <laughs> it might, <laughs> that's I, <amazing>. yeah. <laughs> We, we, you know, we're, as researchers, we're looking at like the fundamental problems in this, which is like, how do you change the stiffness of soft, of polymers and soft materials? How do you control mm -hmm. them? 
Um, but I think kind of explaining this vision of like where we think is useful, I think helps people see it better. But yeah, I mean, it would be cool. It's, it's, it's still sci-fi because we haven't developed it yet. Um, but that's kind of the goal. <laughs> it's wonderful. Like I feel the things that we said was impossible 20 years ago is now just like a normal run of the mill thing you have in your house. <laughs> it's just one yeah. of those things. I'll never ever say it's impossible because it literally has been proven wrong so many times. Technology is getting amazing. Absolutely. Well, I have to end this episode here. I've kept you long enough, but thank you so much for your time and for the awesome explanations about everything and telling me about your work. It was really fascinating. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, let me know and also share to your fellow polymer and science enthusiasts. See you next time.